0: Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. We're in chapter 19. We're going to look at all 25 verses. You can navigate over there on your device or open your Bible. Follow along, please. Transcripts also available at transcript.calvaryhanford.com. The topic this morning the infinitely holy God makes a way for his chosen nation to approach him at Mount Sinai. The title of our message, Ain't No Mountain Holy Enough to Keep Me from Jews. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, this text. It has so many ramifications for the nation of Israel. It's such an important event in their uh, progress. Uh, Less for us, Lord, in one sense, but still deeply moving and and, uh, not without insight. I pray that you would speak to us, between the soul and the spirit, as you promised to do by your Holy Spirit, as he is here to teach us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. He's called Super Sherpa. No man has climbed Everest as many times as Purba Tashi Sherpa Mendiwa. He holds the record at 21. By the way, I don't know if I uh, pronounced his name correctly, but that's not my fault. Besides Everest, Tashi has climbed nine other peaks in the 8,000 foot category. The guy's a beast. He retired in 2014. Moses was quite the mountain climber. The Bible records him making at least nine trips up and down Mount Sinai. Now, the traditional site of Sinai has paths that take about four and a half hours round trip to the 7,500 foot summit. That's a lot of climbing especially here in chapter 19 where Moses makes the round trip four times. It was necessary because God was going to visit Mount Sinai and reveal himself to the Israelites. They needed to be ready, and they needed to be responsive when he did. We're not Israel, but it's always good to be ready for and responsive to the Lord. And so I'll organize my comments around those two points. Number one, good to be ready for the Lord. And number two, it's good to be responsive to the Lord. Let's take a look at being ready in verses 1 through 15. Now, the rest of the book of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, and the first nine chapters of Numbers record the events that took place at Mount Sinai. That's a lot of ink. Extremely important foundational stuff for the nation of Israel. So let's get right into it in verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Moses was a shepherd, not a sherpa, but he had to wear mountaineer sandals once the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai. Now, we don't know where Mount Sinai is, not for sure. Little or no evidence supports the traditional site in the south-central Sinai Peninsula. In fact, it seems the only reason that the traditional site is designated is that Helena, the mother of Constantine, decreed it was in the early 300s AD. And so apparently on some visit to the Holy Land, uh, she decided that was Mount Sinai without any real archaeological evidence or any evidence whatsoever. There's also evidence that points to a peak in Saudi Arabia, but we really just don't know. Israel came to Mount Sinai seven weeks after the Passover. This timing is reflected in the Feasts of Israel, Pentecost, seven weeks after Passover. Thus, the Jews celebrate it as commemorating the giving of the law. It's a harvest feast, of course, but uh, it's a spiritual feast, and its purpose to the Jews is to remember the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, you know, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon the believers on the day of Pentecost, As the Jews were commemorating the giving of the law, as glorious as that was, the church was receiving the new covenant, having the law written on their hearts. And so you see all this tremendous symbolism that you can follow through uh, with this. Verse 2, they had departed from Rephidim. They'd come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Now, this term wilderness doesn't always mean a dry wasteland. It sometimes means just uninhabited grazing country. This is the same mountain of God, also called Horeb, where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And so he was familiar with making a sense to this mountain. Verse three, and Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. The house of Jacob. That is, Jacob and his sons and their families had settled in Goshen, outside Egypt, some 70 persons. 400 plus years later, the children of Israel were millions of people. We've said that there's at least 2 million, perhaps as many as 6 million. Then in verse 4, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What God did to the Egyptians was more than a show of power. I think mostly if you, even among Christians, you say, what did God do to the Egyptians? Oh, man, he wiped those guys out. Plague after plague, I mean, and then he drowned them in the Red Sea. And that's all true, but there was more than that. As we went through it, we saw that it was a show of his compassion as he invited Pharaoh to repent. Why bring nine, then a tenth plague? If you're not serious about, asking somebody to repent and to get on board with the program. And secondly, it was a show of his patience as he waited nine times for Pharaoh to repent. Not once or twice or three times, but he kept waiting uh, after hundreds of years of waiting. And even though it was getting tougher for his people, God is serious about revealing himself to lost mankind. And then it was finally a show of his protection as he kept unrepentant Egypt from overwhelming Israel at the Red Sea. Once it was clear that Pharaoh was never going to repent, once he had passed that point uh, and he was actively trying to destroy Israel, then God stepped in and protected his people. God reveals himself. He works at revealing himself to mankind so that we can seek after him and find him. Uh, and that's something that we just, um, we believe, we understand, but we want to emphasize over and over. God, uh, can man by searching find God? The answer is no. God must reveal himself, but he has in so many glorious ways. He's not trying to stay hidden. All over the world, in, in civilized and uncivilized nations, tribes and tongues, the Lord is revealing himself. His dealings with Israel weren't meant to exclude Gentiles from knowing him, but rather to give them a witness through the Jews. He was raising up this nation to be his witness to the, uh, to the world. Eagle's wings, one of the great illustrations in the Bible of God's watchful care for his people. It's repeated in many different places in scripture. You probably have it on a plaque on a wall in your home. Too bad we've ruined it in our commentaries. Here's an example of what I mean. All at once, the mother eagle pushes the little one out of the nest, and the eaglet falls down the face of the cliff, surely to be destroyed. But not so. In a flash, the great mother eagle flies down, catches the little one on her back, flies up and deposits it in the nest. The mother bird then pushes the little one out again and again, over and over. You think, wow, what a great illustration of our walk with the Lord. I'm all happy and comfortable in the the eagle's nest. I don't want to go anywhere. But God comes along and through trials or tribulations or sufferings, he pushes me out of the nest. And just when I think I'm going to be destroyed, he swoops under me by the power of his Holy Spirit and returns me to a place of comfort. And this happens over and over in my life. You already know what I'm going to say. It ain't true. Eagles don't do that. According to eagles.org, and they should know, I mean, if you own eagles.org, you went to some trouble to be an expert. They say eagles spend 10 to 12 weeks on the nest, do all their own flight training, fledge from the nest on their own, gradually gain strength and hone their flight skills over the next month or two. So mom's not doing any swooping down. An ornithologist writes, some eaglets take their first flight and have no issues. Some may go crashing through the branches and injure their wings and won't make it. Sometimes eaglets will fall out of the nest due to some disturbance like fireworks or a rogue puff of wind, and they fall from the nest before they are ready or even able to fly. If they are forced from the nest too early, they just can't fly, and usually they don't make it. And so what does God intend from the illustration of the eagle? Well, here I think it's as simple but as beautiful as God depicting his sovereignty as if he were an eagle soaring. The eagle effortlessly soaring high above on the thermals, looking down with proverbial eagle eyes, was like God overseeing the Israelites on their exodus. While they were in the throes and the thick of it, God was watching their every move from his sovereign position. Now, I know someone's gonna come up and quote Deuteronomy 31.11, which says this, "'As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, "'spreading out its wings, taking them up, "'carrying them on its wings.'" Well, eagles do stir their nests and hover and spread their wings over their young. They do not take up their young, and they do not carry them in this manner. So is the Bible wrong? Well, of course not. This verse divides into two very different halves. The first half refers uh, to the image of the eagle and its loving care for its young. Then the focus shifts, and in the second half, God himself is the subject of all three of the verbs, the carrying on the wings, then, is not something an eagle does. It's something God does for Israel. The eagle cares for its young and hovers over them in the same way God spreads himself over his people, sheltering them. But when what the eagle cannot do, the Lord did do. In the face of enemies and danger, God took Israel and put them on his wings and carried them through. You know who got this illustration and understood, I think, what the Bible was trying to say and that's J.R.R. R. Tolkien. In his Lord of the Rings, how many times do the eagles come to the rescue? And, and uh, man, at the end, when the, e- the eagles are coming, and you're like, wow! Well, maybe not you, but I mean, that's a, that's a moment in literature. And these giant eagles come, and they're just majestic and wonderful and fierce in their battle. But they, uh, you know, the little hobbits get to sit on top of them and stuff. And so Tolkien understood that this was hyperbole. The writer isn't saying that this is how eagles behave. You can go out and see how eagles behave. They don't do this. But this is how God would behave if he were an eagle, and it's a hyperbole that really is ministering. So I'm sorry if I've ruined this illustration for you. On the other hand, we can't go around making things up. We have a hard enough time as Christians trying to convince people of things. We don't have to make things up that aren't true. We have a little kind of a thing going here on the staff. It's amazing how many biblical illustrations that are ingrained in us over the years are just not true. The internet is helpful for this because you can research things out. used to be you'd hear something in church. Pastor Gene got up and said, eagles swoop down underneath and catch their little eaglets. And you would assume that that's true. And of course, I read it somewhere and that guy read it somewhere and somebody made it up somewhere. And so a lot of illustrations, uh, you just, just research them out. Research out my illustrations. I don't want to be given false illustrations. My favorite one is the frog in hot water. Are you familiar with that one? If you put a frog in water and keep heating it very, very slowly, soon the frog will just die because he acclimates to the hot water, and when it boils, it'll kill him. And it's, it's a powerful illustration of... of becoming lukewarm and then in our society and not speaking out against sin and things like that. The only problem with it is it's not true. Frogs are a lot smarter than that. A little frog is gonna say, hey, it's warm in here and I don't seem to be chained down. I'm gonna jump out, watch me. And so let's just be careful about these. Some of these illustrations, if they're too good to be true, they're not true. And so verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth, all the earth, is mine. Treasure can be translated jewels. God was inviting Israel to hold a special place among the nations of the world. Israel would be his crown jewel as far as the nations. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. A priest represents God to people and represents people to God. God's intention for his crown jewel was that Israel and each Israelite represent him to the rest of the world. To that effect, they were to be holy, which simply means be set apart. The ceremonial laws, the rites and rituals, the diet and days they were to observe, all these set them apart from Gentiles to the end that they would be asked why. And be able to share the Lord. And so they would. we're going to read about a lot of um, odd and unusual rituals and customs and things that the Jews had to observe. And a lot of times, especially in the dietary laws, there's a lot of literature about how, oh, this is how God intended all men to eat the way that Israel was uh, told to eat in the Old Testament and this is the diet that you must follow because it's the spiritual diet. Well, that's all obliterated in the New Testament when Paul says, eat whatever you want. Scarf. Just be careful you don't offend anybody how you're eating, and don't be a glutton about it. I mean, so, uh, you know, it, it isn't, but the Jews had all of these rules and regulations, and people would say, man, that's weird, They go, well, no, it's not really weird. It's, you know, because we followed the, the God of creation, the God of all the earth. You want to hear about him? And it was a witnessing technique. They didn't have witness wear, they didn't have t shirts that said, Jesus saves. They had customs that spoke about the symbolism and stuff. And so that's what's going on. They were to be holy, set apart. And so verse 7, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Israel has been criticized for too quickly promising, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I mean, they hadn't even heard everything that the Lord had spoken. And so it seems easy to accuse them of, of being prideful, but... We do something similar. As a Christian, you have an imperfect knowledge of God. You will never have a perfect knowledge of God until you shed this mortal body and are in the presence of God. Do you realize that? You're just not going to know God perfectly. Your theology is always going to be wrong at some point not your orthodoxy, there's certain things all Christians believe, but a lot of the things that you, and, and there's a lot of things that you'll never learn between now and eternity, but that will be revealed to you in eternity. Nevertheless, you and I regularly commit to God. We, we say, Lord, you know whatever you want, I'm, 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 I'm on board. And then you find out what God wants later on. And so we're in the same boat that Israel was in, so it's not necessarily pride, It's not prideful to submit to the Lord before you know exactly what he's going to say to you. It makes perfect sense because he is the Lord. And so verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The people needed to know that Moses would continue to speak for God. He was their leader. This wasn't going to be a democracy. This wasn't a situation where Moses would lead them out of the, uh, into the wilderness and into the land of uh, promise, and then they would establish three branches of government. This, this was not that at all. And so God said, I'm going to show the people that I speak through you to them. And so part of this uh, has that as its background. They're gonna get a visual representation of Moses' delegated authority By hearing God speak to Moses from the thick cloud. Even then, as you go in forward into the history of Israel, there were rebellions against Moses. Who made you the guy that speaks for God? Well, God did. And so it's, it's interesting. Verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Ready is the key word. Their readiness would be symbolized by two things they would show they were ready by waiting until the third day, and they would show they were ready by washing their clothes. Waiting with washed clothes by itself meant nothing. It's important to understand the rituals themselves were powerless. These things Israel was told to do to be ready were symbols that communicated they were willing to obey the Lord. They were an outward show of inward belief. How can you show that you're, you know, wanting to be in the presence of the Lord? Wash your clothes and wait for the appointed time. All right, and the anticipation would go And Do you ever... I rarely wear white pants because even if you're eating breakfast, you get spaghetti sauce on them somehow. I don't know how that is. You, there's no spaghetti to be seen anywhere, but you get a meatball thrown at you or something. So, so you wash your clothes, keep them clean, wait, you know, and, and so it builds anticipation. It wasn't that you can only see God with clean clothes. Verse 12, you should set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him. He shall surely be shot or st- uh, with an arrow or stoned. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. And so this is an interesting situation where everybody becomes an executioner. Uh, you see anybody touch the mountain, You can't touch them, but you can shoot them with an arrow or throw rocks at them. And so uh, God maintaining this idea of separation. Although there was obviously a lot of terror at this event, don't lose sight of how glorious it was. God is revealing himself to man. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's description of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember it if you're a fan. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, said Mr. Beaver. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so Lewis is trying to capture that sense of, of terror in the good sense. There's a good terrible. There's a power and a trembling in meeting with God. Yahweh was coming to enter into a covenant, elevating his uh, insignificant nation to the crown jewel of nations. He had redeemed them mightily and would now make them his crown jewel. They would be looked upon as those who had the knowledge of the one true God. All the nations of the world would seek them out. You see a little bit of this uh, moving forward when they finally do come into the promised land under Joshua's leadership and they encounter Jericho, the people are terrified of the Israelites because they know that they are the unique people of God. And though many of them decide to fight anyway, there are those like Rahab who says, hey, I want to know this God, this God who stories I've heard and who is powerful and loves his people. And so God was doing that. Don't touch the mountain. That sounds reasonable to me. I don't have any problem with that. It emphasizes God's holiness while simultaneously communicating that God has made a way to have a personal relationship. And so God says, look, I'm really holy. I'm I'm infinitely holy. You can't look at me and live. That's just the way things are. That's the kind of God you want, an infinitely holy God. And, And the sad part is you're pretty sinful. So God says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna make a way for us to have a relationship so that we can communicate with each other. And at this point in time, it's gonna involve the giving of the law. And, and so this mountain is where I'm gonna do it and it's gonna quake and shake and smoke and, and there's gonna be noise, but it's glorious. It's an amazing thing. It, it, you know, We're not to look at it as something negative, but something extremely positive. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Oh, by the way, don't come near your wives. So he taxed that on at the very end. In addition to waiting and washing, they were to abstain from normal sexual relations within their marriages. It was a temporary fast intended to focus the mind away from self and onto God. And again, nothing, um, don't read anything into this, positive or negative. It was just that in addition to waiting and washing, they were to observe a fasting so that they could focus their mind on the Lord. Now, this is the point in our study that we make application to ourselves. But before we do, there's a passage in the New Testament we absolutely must read. If anybody teaches this section and doesn't read this passage, they haven't done their job and will for sure get things wrong. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer was exhorting persecuted Christian Jews to not return to Judaism and thereby avoid martyrdom. He told them they had something and someone better. To make his point, he used this situation at Mount Sinai as his illustration. And here's what he said in Hebrews 12. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. You have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And so you and I, we no longer approach God as if he were thundering from Mount Sinai. We're already citizens of a new Jerusalem, the future city Jesus is a way building that comes out of heaven to hover over the earth. And so it's very important that we not Give up our status. It's easy to read a section of scripture like this and say, man, we are not doing this right. We need to wear better clothes. We need to do a lot more fasting. And and we need to really, really prove to the Lord that we're waiting on him. And, And those are reasonable conclusions if you forget where you're at on God's timeline. Because this writer says, no, you guys don't go back and act like Jews under the first covenant. You've been set free from all that. God's dealings with Israel at Sinai were glorious, but they fade into shadow when compared with what we have in Jesus Christ. We believe in what theologians call dispensations. William MacDonald has a great section on this in his Believer's Bible Commentary. Here's just a brief portion McDonald says, It is very helpful to see that there are different dispensations in God's historic dealings with mankind. The distinction between law and grace is especially important. Otherwise, we take portions of Scripture that apply to other ages and refer them to ourselves. While all Scripture is profitable for us, not all were written directly to us. Passages dealing with other ages have applications for us, but their primary interpretation is for the age for which they were written we could cite the dietary restrictions of Leviticus chapter 11. According to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, this prohibition is not binding on Christians today. But the underlying principle remains that we should avoid moral and spiritual uncleanness. And so we read these restrictions in Leviticus and we think, oh, I guess that's our diet. I'm going to have to give up bacon. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, that, no. That was symbolic of something spiritual. And under the new covenant that I've written in your heart, it simply means that you should uh, avoid all moral and uh, physical uncleanness. Every Christian holds to some form of dispensationalism. For example, none of you, I noticed, brought a lamb to church this morning for sacrifice. Why is that? Because we no longer sacrifice lambs because Jesus was the Lamb of God Slain for the sins of the world. So something changed. There was a major change, right? That's why we don't go back to Judaism. We're, we're, there's, we don't need to sacrifice a lamb. In fact, it would be really wrong to do so. And so if you talk to your friends and you bring up this big word dispensation, oh, you know, you're dispensationalist. That's wrong. The Bible doesn't teach that. Ask them the last time they brought a lamb to church to sacrifice. And so we could disagree on how many dispensations or how God, you know, does all that. That's for theologians to argue about. But there's at least two, law and grace. There was a time under the law that you had to bring animals to sacrifice and now we don't because there's been a major change that was progressive and predicted in the Bible. So how then does Mount Sinai minister to us? Well, in being ready. Ready. The New Testament encourages us to be ready in at least two ways. We're told to sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And we're told, and the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into patient waiting for Christ. Don't look back to Mount Sinai and the keeping of the law with its rules and rituals, diet and days. Look forward to the imminent coming of Jesus. Our waiting and our washing and any fasting is spiritual. It's Holy Spirit-empowered. Ours is a freedom in Jesus no previous dispensation experienced. And it's something that we should revel in, not uh, draw back from. Now, it's good to be responsive to the Lord. After second service, we're having a baptism today, but it won't be a spontaneous baptism. A large, outwardly successful megachurch was busted for its practice of what they called spontaneous baptism. The pastor would just all of a sudden stop his message and say, we're going to have a baptism right now. If you haven't been baptized, come forward. And amazingly, immediately, people started coming forward to be baptized on the spot. Well, later on, they found out that at least 15 people in each service were planted there to start the flow of spontaneous baptisms. And so, you know, if you were on the fence, uh, you know, it's one thing for, for the pastor. Let's say I say, hey, if you need to be baptized, you need to come up right now in the clothes you're wearing and get baptized. You know, most people are going to just think, he doesn't know if I've been baptized or not, so I'm just gonna sit here. But in the right atmosphere, when you see, oh, this guy, and they would tell them in their, uh, in their training they, they took the longest, most circuitous route to get down to the front so that people could see them. And, then, and they acted like they were being spontaneously baptized. And so other people in the congregation were encouraged to be baptized. Now, we're gonna have a big divide here on people who think that's okay and me. <laughs> so we're not gonna do stuff like that. So any baptisms we have are genuine planned baptisms. Uh, now, regarding your tithing, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's important we respond to God. And, you know, as a pastor, somebody who leads services, basically, you, you really want people to respond, and you're not always sure what that means. And, and because your response so often is spiritual. And, and if you're in a church like ours that isn't exuberant, uh, nothing wrong with that, but we're a little bit more conservative you know, you, I can see how guys can be drawn into an idea about how to make people respond, so that you, something happened. In fact, I remember an outreach we did one time, and another pastor came up to me and he said, "Hey, no one is responding. So you have to do something to get people to respond." And I go, "Like what? <laughs> the Holy Spirit can't get them to respond. But watch this." <laughs> I mean, come on. I know what it's like. Um, It's it's deflating when you give an altar call and nobody responds, but not to the point where you want people to fake respond so that other people can be encouraged. So we want to keep things genuine. Our chapter continues with the response of the Israelites to God's invitation. Verse 16, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. The Lord manifested himself by sights and sounds, but it wasn't a gimmick or a stunt. It was an appropriate representation of his glory. This is what happens in that dispensation when God visits a mountain. Uh, I mean, it's, it's you know the thrice holy God, the maker of heaven and earth. I mean, when he touches the mountain, it's, it's gonna shake. Verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. The people responded. It was genuine. They chose to be there. They wanted to be there. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. This is maybe the worst venue ever. Ever. You ever been to a concert that was so loud you couldn't take it? Well, that's your fault for not bringing earplugs. Yeah, that's a a must, right? But this is a terrible venue. Doesn't God know how to run sound? The trumpet blast that you can hardly stand. If we did this in church today, nobody would come. They'd go someplace else. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai in the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, go down. <laughs> Stop there for a moment. Go down? <laughs> I just got up. It had taken him hours. God could have spoken to him anywhere at any time. So Moses climbs 7,500 feet or however, you know, wherever the mountain actually is, but it's, it's, it, the mountain in Saudi Arabia is just about as tall. And the Lord says, blah, 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 go back down. Well, why didn't you just tell me this at the base of the mountain? But he He didn't. And I'm gonna say something that sounds weird, but God sometimes is inefficient. He sometimes at least seems inefficient. I say that reverently, but it's true. For example, using you and I to spread the gospel is terribly inefficient when you consider the resources at God's disposal. But that's how he's chosen to reveal himself. Imagine tomorrow you go to work and all of a sudden somebody says, hey, you gotta come outside and see what's going on. And you look up in the sky and there's an angel preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's going to happen in the uh, time of the revelation. That's pretty effective. And I'm sure they get all the words right. Or you're at work and God says to you, hey, you need to preach the gospel. And you're like, I hope there's an opening. Maybe somebody will come up to me and say, "What must you do to? Be saved? What must I do to be saved?" You know that kind of thing. I mean, I'm not putting a burden on any of us, but we're a lot less efficient than angels. And, and so God He does things that are not quite as efficient as we would like, but they're always for an amazing reason. And the Lord said to Moses, "Go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish." These Israelites, uh, some of them, were willing to ignore God's warnings. They would have made great California drivers. We regularly ignore all kinds of warnings, don't we? I was thinking about this. I only got two. Street closed, what does that mean? Less traffic. (laughs) Carry chains. That's always my favorite because we lived in the mountains. And after you've lived in the mountains where you carry chains and put chains on, these flatlanders come up. And they spin out in front of you and they start having a snowball fight while you're trying to get to work. And man, it's, it's on. And so carry chains means I'll call AAA. <laughs> and, and so California Drive, we regularly, how many times have you driven through barricades because there's nobody there with a shotgun to stop you? <laughs> if, if somebody else goes through, I remember that time on the grapevine, there's, without any warning, all of a sudden there were like barricades, you know, But there was enough room between them to drive through. And cars were driving. They weren't even slowing down. And so Pam said, are we going to stop? I go, where? And do what? If they didn't want us to go through, they'd be here with the army. (laughs) Got to the top of the grapevine. There was snow. The road was closed. But, you know, you just waited it out. And then you go home. I mean, you know, I'm not going to turn back. And so uh, some of the Israelites say, hey, yeah, I know, but we, we got to see you. This is our big opportunity. Let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. A formal priesthood did not yet exist. Apparently, each family had someone designated to perform sacrifices and make offerings to the Lord. We forget that these Israelites had tradition and, and history from Abraham and that they offered sacrifices, It wasn't codified yet in the Levitical law. They didn't have Levitical priests, but there were uh, things going on prior to the giving of the law. Sounds like these priests were going to need extra consecration. We're not told what it was. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Moses assumed the people would obey due to the severity of the warnings. but some might not. They would act more like teenagers do. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. And so here's Moses up and down again. Go down, come up. If God wants you to spend most of your day climbing, that's his call, right? I mean, I always think I have a more efficient, effective way of doing things, and then God says, how about we do it this way? How about it takes a decade instead of overnight? Uh, Is there anything I can say about it? No. All right, well then, I guess I'll wait. And, And so, you know, this is what God wanted for Moses. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Moses responds obediently throughout. The people respond not perfectly, but enthusiastically. We ought to respond to God. Thankfully, he's not manifesting himself like at the mountain, But he is present, both as we gather and, of course, everywhere. Isaiah's famous declaration upon seeing God is still applicable, I think. Here am I, God, send me. It rings true with the exhortation in our dispensation that we offer ourselves living sacrifices and thereby serve the Lord as he directs us. And so the idea is to silence your phone so that it doesn't interrupt the stirring conclusion where people are coming to Christ (laughs) as planted in the audience. So, yeah, you five plants come forward now. No, I'm just kidding. Except about the interruption part. But anyway, uh, so Isaiah sees God, and he says, what's the response? Here am I, send me. Well, what else could you say? And, and you think, oh, I'd love to see God. You don't need to see God. God lives within you. And Paul the Apostle says, the only reasonable thing you can do is offer yourself a living sacrifice and do whatever God wants you to do. We all daily and weekly need to ask ourselves, how am I responding to God through my life? How am I responding to the things that God has told me and is telling me? If you're not a believer in Jesus, you respond to him knocking at the door of your heart. You open it. You let him in to share eternal life with you. We're not called upon to be spiritual Sherpas making rigorous climbs to be near to God and to hear God. Thanks to Jesus, our ascent is more like that of an eagle. We are those who wait on the Lord, who renew their strength, who mount up with wings like eagles, who run and are not weary, who walk and do not faint. Let's pray.